economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, today we want to talk about fairness in, a, I guess, a little more narrow sense. Of course, equity and fairness and justice and social justice and all of that is kind of a big buzz today. And I think fairness is something that can be subjective, but I think there's objective ways of looking at it as well. I'll certainly have my philosopher friend over here to beat me up on on this. But so as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, I'm kind of a free trade guy. And the idea of free trade is that two parties can exchange voluntarily and they wouldn't do something if they thought ahead of time it was going to harm them. And so voluntary trade leads to a win-win situation. I gain as the seller, the person I sold something to gains as the buyer, whether that's because they valued something higher than what they had to pay me to get it or otherwise, as long as things are voluntary and information is at least approximately equal across the parties, that there's no asymmetric information as we talk about then that is a win-win situation and a good thing for society and a good thing for the parties. So, so then this fairness idea came about from teaching a class on negotiations. So I consider myself a pretty good negotiator. I had my real estate license for about 20 years. I've negotiated lots of deals that way. I'm a big fan of garage sales. So on Saturday mornings, uh, I am heavily negotiating on things under $5.00. If I buy something for uh, my house, I will check Craigslist first and, and usually find some great deals that way. So I'm kind of a deal junkie. And so I've, I've done a lot of negotiating and I found that a lot of times people will judge a negotiation after the fact. So my PhD professor, Dr. Harvey LaPan, taught me in my PhD microeconomics class that you can't judge a decision ex post ex post means after the fact. You can only judge a decision ex ante before the fact because we can't, hindsight's 2020. And so when we look back on negotiations or deals where somebody got a bigger share or larger share than the other and somebody claims that's not fair, led me to this fairness theorem that we're going to discuss today. And in my executive MBA and uh, my managerial economics graduate class for the, our MBA program here, we have a chapter where we talk about this. And, and so I throw some discussion questions out and inevitably I get a similar response about judging things after the fact. And so I wanna read you a, a quote and then we'll, we'll let other people jump in with their ideas of fairness. And so here, here we go. The issue of fairness is complex and it is usually not fair to look at the results of a negotiation ex post to judge it. I propose this fairness theorem. If you had the opportunity to gather information before a negotiation but chose not to do it and you were not forced to come to terms with a negotiation, then the outcome of the negotiation was fair and both parties were made better off. 
parentheses, you would not agree to do something that makes you worse off if the status quo was better. Now, real people with hindsight do judge fairness, but often fail to appreciate differences in preferences and circumstances of each individual in the deal. This may cause an observer to view the person with a smaller share of the overall gains from trade to have received a quote unquote raw deal. But it is likely not true if you buy into my fairness theorem. So there's Russ McCullough's fairness theorem. And let's see what philosopher Dr. Clark has to beat me up on. I like that the theorem is specific and that it gives necessary and sufficient conditions for what you want to call fairness. I have a couple problems with it. One is that I don't think that it captures what most people think of as fairness, in which case you could make two different moves, right? You could say, and this is what maybe I think you might want to say is something like, no, I'm actually concerned with a very much more narrow conception. I mean something like legally permissible negotiation, which would be fine. Then you would be putting forward a thesis about some kind of new term, right? And you're saying, what I mean by this new term is this definition. But what it seems like you're doing instead is saying, here's a theory about what this word means. And I'm going to give you necessary and sufficient conditions for what I think this word means. And the problem is that nobody else thinks what that, that's what that <laughs> word means. And so, you know, if you run this experiment with your classes and you find out that they all think that that word doesn't apply and you go, no, 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 no. I'm right about this word mean, what this word means. <laughs> I think that that might be just a mistake in terms of what you're trying to formulate, right? The other problem I have with it is I think that in its specifications, it might permit things being fair that I don't even think you might consider fair, right? So it seems to permit a lot of duplicity on any one of the agents in, a, in an exchange, right? What do you mean by duplicity? I could sell you a car and, you know, say, I've got this car, you know, feel free to take a look at it if you want and not disclose to you that it has all these problems or dead people in the trunk, whatever, what's implicated in a crime, et cetera. And give you, you know, let you, you know, you have the option to do the research or whatever, but if you, you know, take me at my word and you don't do that research and you end up in jail or dead or whatever, well, it was fair. You know, you could have done this research, but you didn't. And so you have no room to complain. And so my worry is that, and I don't think you would think that that's fair. But if you do think it's fair, then I think there's something wrong with the theory. If you want to add more things to your theory such that the theory will exclude that from being a fair trade, then I think that that's also a problem. I think I'm not, and I, I might even, after rereading what I wrote before, I want to be clear that the negotiation was fair. And I think what you're saying is that after the fact, again, a little bit with hindsight, if people call what they call as fair is that the outcomes were so lopsided that it wasn't fair, then can is it possible under that set of circumstances that the negotiation was fair, but the outcome wasn't fair? Because my, my definition did kind of say outcome. And I, as I read that, I'm like, okay, then the, well, I says the outcome of the negotiation was fair. So uh, nah, 
I might be double backing on my words even. Maybe I'm not. So this is the other thing I would object to, which is now it seems like you're judging outcomes. And I thought you just said we couldn't judge outcomes. Yeah. Well, I thought that's what you were saying, but you're not. Maybe I misunderstood you. I'm saying we can judge all kinds of things in all kinds of different ways. And so this idea that we can't judge a negotiation ex post, I think we definitely can judge a negotiation ex post. We just might have, we might not want to say things like, we might have a different standard for culpability. Uh, I would just say than, that, no, it was fair. It just sucks for you. But it was fair if you had the opportunity to do it. And what about caveat emptor, buyer beware? Do we have this perception in society because we've been coddled by the government protection over the years that buyer beware has lost a lot of its meaning over time and, and personal accountability that if you made a bad decision, it's really your fault in terms of the buyer beware? So I wanted to, I, I think this is related to the point that you're going on down now. My issue and, and not issue in that I think it's bad, but something that needs to be clarified in the definition, I think, is what it means for a person to have the ability to do their own research and find things out. And so let, let me give you an example. Let's say that I am trying to buy a car from someone and the Kelly Blue Book is out there and so I can do research on it. But as soon as I go to the Kelly Blue Book, every time I'm about to search it, you look in my window and you see I'm about to search and you pull my internet cord and you, I no longer have that information. <laughs> it's, it's a silly example, but, but what I'm trying to illustrate is a point, which is that the seller of a good can make it more expensive for you to search for information. Not revealing something is making it more expensive for you to search for information. Trying to sabotage your search is what making it more expensive to get information. And is there a difference between not being able to find out information at all or me just making it so expensive that you it would, wouldn't be worthwhile for you to find out the information? And so I, I guess where my issue comes in with the definition of fairness here is that if I make it so expensive by not telling you things so expensive to find out information about the car, isn't that the same as you not being able to find information out in the first place? No. <laughs> so how I get you, how what you're you, saying. So yeah. you're, you're being a good economist, bring, raising transaction costs, but here right. a little bit more deviously because the seller is actually raising the transaction costs. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I guess my question is what qualifies as not being able to search for information? So I mean, is, is there ever a time where someone couldn't search out the information that you would call it unfair? No. And, and here's, here's why I think this way. You're still doing a cost benefit analysis, which is the expected cost and the expected benefits. So as the cost of the search rises, you still have expected benefits that could outweigh those costs. So you're buying the car and the probability scale starts to tilt when you can't make that search, right? So the probability of it being a good car increases when you take it to a mechanic, do your Kelly Blue Book, do your research online, blah, 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 right? Your probability of it being a good car, there still exists probability that it's going to be a lemon, but your probability of it being a good car increases. So all you're telling me is that before the fact, if the seller raised the cost of doing it, the probability of it being a good car is going to fall, which is going to lower the expected benefits, possibly to a point where the expected costs are higher than the expected benefits. And then I move on to a new seller. So I still don't think that so rules out the fairness. I, I think this is an interesting point because what you've said to me, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's always the case in any sort of negotiation that you can search for more information. And so if that's true, then you actually don't need that piece of your definition. 
you can take that piece out. If it's always true that there's, you can search for more information, then fairness doesn't depend upon that because that's like, that'd be like saying fairness depends on that we're human beings in negotiation. Well, that's true, but we're always human beings in our negotiation. So, so do you still agree with your definition of fairness if you take that clause out? I think it might be just for clarity. I do see what you're saying. It says, and you were not forced to come to terms with negotiation was the second part after I said the opportunity to gather information. And so that's a part of being forced, I guess, if you did not have the opportunity to gather negotiation, you were basically forced. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. So those two things could collapse on each other, perhaps. Justin? I still think the big problem here is that you are not talking about what most people mean by fairness, right? And what I mean by that is in most people's minds, the concept of fairness is tied up with the concept of goodness, the concept of justice, the concept of moral permissibility. How those things are tied up might be a little different in everybody's mind, right? But yeah. fairness is a moral concept. Ooh. Okay. And, and I'm trying to not make it a moral concept. Well, the problem is <laughs> I have a feeling that once you put forward this definition of fairness, it might be used in moral arguments. Such and such a negotiation is permissible because it's fair, which most people, most people would say fair negotiations are permissible, right? Okay, well, what does fair mean? Uh, well, I learned in my econ class that fair means blah, 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 right? But the problem is that that's not what most people mean by fair. And you are putting forward a definition of fairness, which actually has no moral concepts that are in the definitions of fairness, right? And so yeah. you're trying to kind of take a non-moral description. And if you are going to use that definition later, you are granting moral import to this non-moral description. Now that can come back to bite you a couple of different ways, right? Because it might turn out that this non-moral description actually grants moral status to things that you don't want to say are moral, which is what I was saying earlier. Or it can just turn out that nobody is going to agree with you about what things you think are and aren't fair. So it also strikes me that your, your definition of fairness, so I was saying earlier that it might miss construe some negotiations as fair that most people would say are unfair. But it also won't apply the predicate is fair to a bunch of cases where people want to talk about whether things are fair. This is a, because we talk about fairness in more contexts than mere negotiation, right? We talk about a bunch of other things sure. that are fair. And if that's the case, then what I want to say is just use a different word. Say, I'm going to define this term of art for negotiation. And that way you're not importing any moral qualities to it. And new, brand new word, like McCullough has a nice ring to it. Is that what you're thinking? Like, let's McCullough this deal. Yeah. I, or that was a McCullough deal. Yeah. I mean, look, when it was totally fair, <laughs> when, we call something Pareto optimal because of, you know, yeah. Vilfredo Pareto was talking about, right? Yeah. Pareto improvement. Uh, so we would want to say something like, you know, a negotiation is, you know, McCullough permissible if blah, blah, blah <laughs> is the case. I think this might be something we have to come back to after break, but I actually have to disagree with both of you a little bit here. And I actually think maybe when I say this, that maybe one or both of you will come around. But I think that there is a moral judgment, Russ, going on in your theory of fairness. I don't think, I don't think you have removed morality. 
And I think that this fairness definition or McCullough-ness definition, whatever it is, is something that applies to all human interaction. Maybe not human action by itself, but at least all human interaction. And I think that that would be interesting to talk about after the break. Okay, that sounds like a good place to break. And I thought we should sneak in a little faith and fairness into this discussion as well. We'll see you in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordney Institute at Otto University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have graduate assistant Nate that you hear on the show, and we have another opening for graduate assistant to starting this summer for if you want to start your MBA journey and be a part of the Gordon Institute team, please talk to me about applying. We also have an undergraduate scholarship that covers up to 75% tuition here at Ottawa University, and that is something that's available for undergraduates to apply for. So if you're interested in either of those, or you know somebody who's looking for a college like ours, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right. So Peter left us with a cliffhanger. Peter, you thought Justin and I were both wrong, which Justin has already challenged him on the break that that's impossible. He's got some sort of impossibility theorem that he's working on. So what do you got? Sure. Well, I I think the reason that I think Justin is wrong is that he took us in a direction that we don't need to go because even though Russ has made this claim that there's, he's trying to purge the morals out of his fairness discussion or the value judgments, he hasn't. And here's why Russ's claim of fairness was that it was contingent on two things. One of them we've already decided is superfluous. So Russ said that, well, you need to be able to gather information and Russ said, you always can. And so we don't need that condition. The other condition that Russ puts forward is that the agreements to the exchange can't be forced. This is a moral claim, or it assumes a moral framework. It assumes a moral framework whereby it would be wrong to force someone to do something that they don't want to do, right? Behind that is some sort of assumption that, well, you know, you should be able to walk away from an exchange. And and this is a a moral question that we we would have to go to philosophy. It's not in economics. I knew I was moral after all. (laughs) But let's do an example that maybe will help tease this out is that I, well, let's not use me. Let's say some guy, we'll call him Albert, walks up to a grocery store counter and Albert comes up and he says, your money or your life. And he, he puts a gun on the table. Well, what does the cashier do? The cashier can either decide with expected probabilities and expected payoffs to not give the money from the cash register, or they could decide to give the money from the cash register. And so the choice that's being offered to them is either their life and they lose the money in the cash register, or they die and presumably without the key, they can't get into the cash register. Or maybe the criminal does after the fact. This is the same sort of thing that's going on in any normal negotiation. There's an expected payoff. You have two alternatives. And depending on what you choose, something may or may not, may not happen. The cashier could call the bluff and say, no, I don't believe you. This is a toy gun. It's not loaded. You're not actually going to shoot me. And by the way, sometimes that's happens and the cashier's been right. Sometimes people bluff and then they just like run away. They're afraid that the police are going to get them. They're not killers on the inside. 
But the only difference between this and a normal negotiation is what Russ is talking about, which is that negotiation shouldn't be forced. That, that's the only difference I could see. So Russ's fairness claim ultimately is sort of a regression to a claim that we shouldn't force people to do things. And so uh, I think that this applies really, and, and I, this doesn't mean I'm endorsing it, but this is what the claim is. And it does apply really to every interaction, right? And in any given interaction, you have some sort of expected payoff from the interaction. You have different options. You can choose to leave the interaction or not, and you can face the consequences of your decisions. And Russ's framework, which I actually agree with Justin, most people don't really share this framework. They might say they do, but they don't. Russ's moral framework is that we shouldn't force people to do things. And I think most people disagree with that and don't think that that's a a proper moral framework. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, I think you take first. I I do have one thing to say. Well, I think that this idea that the theorem reduces fairness to non-aggression or non-forcing. I think that's a problem for the theorem. And it's also a problem for, uh, because it doesn't seem to me like people use that definition of fairness, right? We can talk about a lottery being fair if the odds aren't disclosed in a truthful manner, even if nobody is forced to participate in it, right? So in that case, it would be unforced, but we also think, oh, there's something unfair about that, right? And that would be the common usage of the term unfairness. So that's one way when I think the theory might not capture what people mean by fairness, if it is a reduction of fairness to non-aggression. The second thing was that, well, maybe I'll just fill that other for now. Okay. I, I just wanted to make sure that you weren't trying to say that that was a form of negotiation, your money or your life. It, it is, is a form of negotiation. Absolutely. There's, so a co- here, here, there's the same expected payoff situation. You know, you have two different options. You can choose either of them. I think I disagree with that because you don't have the option to opt out without violence. And I, I think, is that the non-aggression principle or I, that's the part I had a problem with that. I don't think that that sounded like force from the get go where you've got to lose, lose the left lesser of two evils. Yes. You're evaluating there. there there's some overlap. Well, just like what you said, you're I, evaluating probabilities, the expected cost, maybe he's bluffing, maybe he's not. That's part of the overlap, but there is a ability to opt out of the deal and say, I'm not. If I see, if I see a car on Craigslist, I actually can't opt out of that decision. I either have to buy the car or not buy the car. If I say your money or your life, you either have to not give me the money or give me the money. I think that you're in the same sort of situation. There is a difference. I agree with you, but I think that this is a negotiation. I I think by, you know, reasonable definitions of the word negotiation, even though people might not consider this to be in a negotiation, people often do make the decision, no, I'm not going to give you the money. So you have the option to say no to the person trying to offer you a deal. Okay. I think we got to bring status quo into it. And what you're doing is you're, you're deviating from status quo with two options. My, even the way I had it worded was, you can remain at status quo. And that's the opting out part. And see, here's, I know Justin wants to jump in. Here's the trick. And this is why you're assuming a moral framework, which isn't a bad thing. It just is a truth, is that you're assuming a status quo. And what I mean by that is when someone comes up and says your money or your life, your assumption, which I think is a decent assumption, but your assumption is that you own your own life. You're assuming a property rights allocation. If the thief owns their own life, then actually they're they're keeping they are keeping the status quo up in the negotiation. Now, mostly we don't think that that's the case. <laughs> we think that people own the things that they own. But the point is this: 
is that there's sort of a cosian thing going on here. In order to impose an externality or a cost on someone else, that other person has to own something and we have to assume they own something. And so in order to talk about your definition of fairness in the background, you have to have a whole definition of who should own what. If the thief should own your life, well, then he's maintaining the status quo. I don't think he should, but the point is in the background of this fairness theorem, there's a whole lot of moral arguments going on that we just don't see. And so I think that it's a potential theorem for fairness, but it requires a lot more to okay, talk about I, fairness. I think I sense a friendly amendment coming, which I maybe implicitly put in there that yes, you own your own life, but let's see what Justin's got to say. Well, well go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead <laughs> so there are two problems here. And I want to say that this, this would be two horns of the dilemma for this theory. On one horn is that there aren't any moral concepts smuggled into the Definians here, and we can give an objective definition of what forcing means, um, and an objective definition of what a negotiation. The problem with that is that if we take that route, we are going to end up with a theory that gives some, I want to say, obviously wrong answers to the question, because it will it's hard to come up with an objective definition of negotiation, which excludes the, your money or your life without kind of importing some moral concepts in there. On the other hand, we could try to import some moral concepts in here, which you were saying, well, I might've actually been doing that. Well, in that case, then, you know, and you can also say this wasn't really a negotiation. There seems to be something wrong with this, your money or your life negotiation. Someone could say, yeah, it's not fair. Right. And you could go, <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I only meant negotiations are fair, which are negotiations that also satisfy this requirement. And by negotiation, I mean, you know, this kind of interaction that is by definition fair. Well, great. That's going to end up with a definition that accurately specifies all and only those negotiations which are fair because the definition says all, neg all negotiations are fair, which are fair negotiations. <laughs> and I think that is 100% true, right? Uh, I can give a more, even more general theory than that. What fairness is, is fairness, right? And that's completely true. But what I want to say is that these terms like fairness, the good, truth, belief, justice, these things are hard to define, not because there is some de some logarithmic definition, which we will soon get. And then, you know, Google will be able to run the logarithm and tell us which acts are good and just and et cetera, but rather because these are kind of fuzzy concepts. And that is the role that these concepts play in you know, our language game of justification, justifying our actions and things like that. We need to argue about what kinds of things are fair and put forward cases and see, well, if we consider this fair, what would that mean for the rest of our moral calculus? And what I want to say is since that's what most people, that's the role that the word fair plays in, the, in our moral deliberations, that is why I want to stress, you should say this negotiation is McCulloch compatible. And then we can say things like, well, it does all, have a nice ring to it. I'll give we can you say, you know, McCulloch compatibility is necessary for a negotiation being legal. If, if we want to say a negotiation is legal, it ought to be McCulloch compatible, right? But not all McCulloch compatible negotiations are morally permissible. But we want also, you know, we know that not everything that's legal is morally permissible or that kind of thing. So we mm -hmm. would say, look, McCulloch compatibility is compatibility is a very good criterion for, you know, this kind of minimal legal justifiability of a negotiation. But smuggling the, the, the word fairness in there, I think just muddies the water about what a definition like this can do for a theory. I do want to drill into McCulloch compatibility though, with just to give one more example to Russ to ex maybe explain to why, why students who even sort of in a way agree with McCulloch compatibility might come to a different conclusion than you. 
And so obviously the example of like who actually owns you is kind of extreme, but we can use like simpler examples in the Coase theorem. If a farmer and a rancher arrive on, you know, plots of land right next to each other at the same time, well, who has the right? Does the farmer have the right to have his crops not be trampled by the rancher? Or does the rancher have the right to not have to put up a fence to prevent his animals from trampling over the farmer's rights? They arrive at the same time. It's kind of fuzzy. It's, it's at least not as clear as like self-ownership or something like that. Or, you know, do you have the rights to pollute the air? How much right to air does any individual have? That sort of thing. And so the, the trick is that if someone thinks that the initial allocation of resources for whatever reason is not fair, and so they think the fact that there is some very rich person who gets a seat at the negotiating table, if you, if you think that them being very rich in the first place isn't fair, then the resulting negotiation is not fair either. Just like if you think it's not fair that the robber assumes that he owns your life when he says your money or your life, then the, the negotiation that comes out from that is fair. And so really in the backgrounds, you have to have some sort of theory of fair initial allocation before you even get into a theory of whether the exchange of the things that you're allocated are fair. And that's where it's tricky and that's where the rubber hits the road. And so a lot of people think negotiations aren't fair because, you know, if you're buying something like, you know, dialysis for your kidneys or insulin for your diabetes, well, you're put in a bad spot that's unfair for you to be in in the first place. And that gives the other person some sort of like power over you. If that's not fair, then the negotiation isn't fair, just like saying your money or your life. I don't know that I agree with that, but the point is the fuzzier the rights, the property rights get at the, at the start, the harder it is to say that the resulting negotiation is fair. I mean, what you just described is what contemporary America is battling right now, is what yeah, you just said. that's right. right. So I, that I think we so. we all have a different starting place, and depending on the color of our skin or our gender or otherwise, then we aren't fair to begin with in a capitalist exchange society because we didn't all start off with the same at the start. Right. If you took from my ancestors to have the property you have today, it's not fair to use that property in a negotiation as if I don't own that property because it's actually mine. I think that's what's going on in the backgrounds. So then we're back to just being fuzzy, what you call is fair and what I call is fair is not. Well, look, it would be one thing if we could specify what McCullough compatibility is and mm -hmm. then see if cases that are specified by McCullough compatibility, all of the McCullough compatibility cases were also the same cases that were specified by what we mean by fairness, right? But the problem is, if what I've been saying is true, that fairness is kind of fuzzy, we, in principle, can't do that because we don't know exactly what the cases that fairness specifies are, right? And by definition, we don't. And actually, McCulloch compatibility was introduced as a way to try to specify the cases of what those things um, mm -hmm. right. that we designate by fairness are. Now, my point is just that if... We acknowledge that, that we don't really have a, a firm grip on what fairness actually is. There are all these disputed cases. Then we should know a priori that we are not going to come up with a logarithmic definition, which is going to satisfy everybody. And so again, that's why I'm going to say, let's specify what McCulloch compatibility is. Mm -hmm see what cases it specifies, and then see, well, so what does that mean about McCulloch compatibility? Does that, is McCulloch compatibility something that we should use when we reason legally or right. when we reason morally? That kind of thing. Yeah. And so I, I, I thought it's probably because I'm an economist that McCulloch compatibility, if we're going to move that direction, is really all analyzing at the margin, right? So you're taking as given whatever two parties are bringing to the table. And that negotiation is 
formally known as FAIR, but maybe McCulloch compatible, because we're just looking at, we're, we're going to ignore the past of what your ancestors were or whatever. What do you have now? What do you have today? And that negotiation was McCulloch compatible. If you had the opportunity, you weren't forced, uh, you could opt out, it wasn't going to your life. Um, so I think maybe that's where it's coming around to. I, I don't know. I mean, another way to think about this is like Pareto optimality, right? Yeah. If somebody said, yeah, I have very... a definition of what uh, fairness is, it's Pareto optimality. And yeah. then you go, well, let's throw all these cases to people. Do they think that this change is a fair change, even though by definition, we know it is a Pareto optimal change, right? Yeah. It makes, you know, one class of people much better off and doesn't improve the lot of anybody else. Yeah. And so listeners, Pareto improving changes are at least one person's made better off without making anybody else worse off. And so you're, you're absolutely right. And that is some of the underpinnings of, of me putting together this concept as it relates to negotiations was certainly uh, stemming from that point too. I, I have to comment though, that we're all kind of sloppy with our language on you were bringing up what's good and what's fair and they're kind of overlapped. Is that a reasonable argument back that it, it's, it's how people perceive it or how language changes over time that what used to be a a good allocation, now we call a fair application or obligate. Um, and if it's my students trying to analyze something, what they're calling fair or unfair is really just bad. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I think we tend to get sloppy with our language a lot. We do. What I want to suggest is that that is a feature, not a bug of some of these concepts. And I mean bug, not bug. <laughs> but uh, I just think that we, we need some concepts that are fuzzy in this way. It was, you know, a project of philosophers in the early part of the 20th century to kind of reduce the kind of fuzziness and really make a language uh -huh. that is logarithmic in this sense that will give necessary and sufficient conditions for all our concepts. Because yeah, it improves right. efficiency yeah. and communication. In terms of behavior. In terms right? of trade and, and whatever. Now, I don't think it does actually improve efficiency to have, I think it's actually impossible to have a kind of language that is necessary and specific in this sense. Um, we just have concepts like the concept of a person, um, you know, the moral concept of good, which uh, resist the kind of conceptual reduction that reduces all the classes of things that are good to a necessary and sufficient condition. So we, as humans, we need these vague concepts. We can't get along without them. And I think that when we try to shoehorn some of these concepts into a definition which doesn't fit with the term's history and the way it's being the way it's currently being used we are going to run into problems well i promised the listeners so i'm going to bring jesus into this so from a biblical standpoint the status quo is unfair we all start from a point of unfairness if we go back to original sin well i didn't sin well it's too bad it's here, it happened, and we're living in a condition of unfairness at varying degrees for each person in humanity. And so McCullough compatibility, if that's what it is, is a way to help people improve their lives and flourish rather than looking for outsiders to determine that fairness, which I think is where we kind of, where I'm trying to say that if we let individuals make their own decisions, we can have this McCullough compatible fairness-ish thing. If people understood that better, then they can improve, that, that'll give them, the, that's the institution that gives them the best chance of improving where they currently are, as opposed to 
some element of fairness coming from the White House and redistributing might lead to outcomes that aren't quite as nice as they think they're going to be. Yeah, I would say since we've spent a long time on critiques, I would say that certainly there is a relationship between McCullough compatibility and fairness. And I, I think one of the most important pieces of the relationship is even like maybe your main point to a certain extent. And but what I mean by that is you've got this great comment that I think benefits people when they're considering fairness, that judging things ex post with the information that we have after the after the negotiation happens, it seems a little bit unfair uh, to, to, to make the question a bit. Uh, seems a little unfair to judge the fairness of a negotiation yeah. based off of you know our our 2020 hindsight. And I think a lot of people don't consider this. And I think if more people considered it what we call fair in our society would be in general difference. And I think that would be a positive improvement. So I, I like the general co contribution of McCullough compatibility. I think it has an important thing to say about fairness. Uh, and that's, that's sort of my final thoughts. All right. So then the main question for Justin is, do I have a chance of getting McCullough compatibility published somewhere in a scholarly journal? I think sure. Really? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, we can work out a little journal, joint project with the Gordon Institute. Yeah, <laughs> what I would want to do is specify necessary and sufficient conditions for McCulloch compatibility and then see, um, you know, do some thought experimenting and decide whether we think that all negotiations which are McCulloch compatible are uh, negotiations which we would want to say are legally permissible, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. um, and if they are legally permissible, um, are they morally permissible? Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're not, maybe all of them aren't legally permissible, uh, permissible, in which case we could either add another condition to McCulloch compatibility, or we could say, even though they're not all legally permissible, it is, you Still know, McCulloch compatible. it is a standard that is met on the way to legal permissibility, yeah, right? And right. since it's not that I don't like things having necessary and specific conditions, I do, but if what we're doing here is inventing a new concept, slap your name on that maybe, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, and call it yeah. the new concept and we can see what kind of work this new concept can do. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Uh, entertaining talk as well, at least for us. Hopefully you listeners got something out of it as well. So we appreciate you listening to our podcast here at the Gorton Institute at Ottawa University. If you find us on your rating systems, a five-star rating helps other people find us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.